For many, a trip to India represents the journey of a lifetime, but as National Geographic International producer Don Drew tells us, India is much more than iconic landmarks. India is a huge country, and there's so many different parts of it that give you a different experience. You just can't do it in one trip. Actress Stephanie Powers has always traveled with a purpose, and her film work around the world has offered unique cultural immersion experiences. Working off as one does in the movie business around the world, that also places you uh, in an unusual position with an unusual perspective because you are almost living in a country. The founding of Friendly Planet Travel is a story about courage, a love for others, and transformation. And the culture of the company reflects the heart of its founder, Peggy Goldman. Enjoy a heart-to-heart and powerful transformative travel experiences and learn about Virginia Beach and Southern Delaware. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. talk to Friendly Planet Travel founder Peggy Goldman and learn how being the child of Holocaust survivors shaped the culture and direction of her group tour operation and her life. Also, just ahead on World Footprints, we'll talk to actress Stephanie Powers about her commitment to animal preservation and protection, and we'll learn how her life on movie sets around the world influenced her view of our planet. We'll also offer a brief glimpse into Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Southern Delaware in the hour ahead. Nice to talk to Don Drew and get an insider's perspective on India, a country that we've had opportunities, or at least you have in the past, and it finally looks like we'll get a chance to visit there, hopefully in the near future. And I'm looking forward to that, because a lot of what I've heard from other travelers who have journeyed to India, it has been a very transformative trip. Of course, there was the poverty, the crowds. But India, as we'll hear from Dawn, is like a a mosaic of color. I liken it to a Mandela. But first, National Geographic television producer Dawn Drew has been to India more than 100 times, and she recently spent three months filming around the country. She says that each visit offers something new and that for a traveler to really experience India in an authentic way, they must go beyond the iconic attractions and visit other states in the country. You recently spent three months in India filming a television program. What uh, is the show that you're working on? It's an international television program that airs on National Geographic uh, Channel International, which is now Fox, and it's called David Rocco's Dolce India. 
and we filmed our second season of 13 episodes, 13 half-hour episodes, and we focused on southern India, and we went east, and then we went north to Punjab. Was that your first time in the uh, in the country? Oh, no. I've been going to India since uh, 2001. I think I've been there probably by now uh, 100 times. What do you think the biggest misperception is that people have about India? There's so many. I don't know what the biggest is. I'll start with the idea that people think they can go for a week and see all the major sites and then have seen India. And India is a huge country and there's so many different parts of it that give you a different experience. You just can't do it in one trip. People say it's a place of a lifetime and it is, but it's not a place that you can go and say, okay, I've done that and really have done that. So that's probably one of the biggest ones. And then, of course, you know, all the stereotypical things, you know, the the poverty and the crime and so forth. It's not quite as bad as people make it out to be. It's changed quite a lot. I had a chance to take a look at some of the footage from uh, the television program. India just seems uh, crowded. What sorts of advice would you give for the first-time traveler, particularly to some of the more uh, populated parts of India? Well, if you are a traveler who wants to go to a major city, whether it's in India or it's New York City or even Hong Kong, cities are very crowded and they are a a bit difficult to navigate. And I've never felt more foreign than when I'm in Asia, being a Westerner. So you have to be prepared for that crush of humanity, for things to be bustly. And in India in particular, It's really kind of crazy to cross the street. I mean, if you've ever been to Rome and you've tried to cross the street there, or if you've tried to cross the street in Hong Kong, it's the same thing. Traffic seems to be coming from all angles. If you're not coming from the Commonwealth or a Commonwealth-run country, the traffic seems to run opposite to what you're used to. My husband used to say, left is right and right is wrong in terms of (laughs) driving to that one certain side of the road. You also have to be prepared to see some things that might, in your opinion, be cruel or harsh conditions for people to live. And it's funny because people come over here and they feel the same way about living conditions in New York City. Oh, how could those people sleep in the park? And why doesn't this child have a place to go? And so it looks different to you. But India is not for the uninitiated, in my opinion, not the cities. If you are not an experienced traveler, I'm going to suggest that you go south to Kerala or to Goa or to Tamil Nadu, where it's quieter and it's really peaceful and very green and the ocean front is beautiful and, and pristine. Now, you've made 100 trips, if not more, to India, as uh, you said. How has your perspective about the country evolved over time? Well, the country has changed. My first time going, there weren't as many cars. The roads weren't as good. It was more difficult to get around. I would get on a train and I would see signs that say things like no cooking, mm-hmm. which I get on a train now and I don't see that. In fact, they have these really nice double-decker trains that are like commuter trains that take you from Delhi to Agra. So you don't see that. But my first time going from Delhi to Agra, I traveled, I I guess it was an upper class. It wasn't first and it wasn't the economy class on a train. I I just got a ticket to go for one day. And there were people with little burner stoves and the lower class cars. And there were people cooking on, on the train. It was really interesting. But, you know, the Indian authorities have modernized everything and it's really different. And the roads are different. You know, I don't know if you've read about or heard about this major building effort to build 
satellite cities or small cities in between the bigger cities that attract the people coming in for jobs and attract businesses and so forth. They're like suburbs, but they are real cities. And that's really changed the population of India and how you, you know, experience it. The other thing is that you've got a population that's become increasingly educated and that's changed the way they do business. So you're starting to see supermarkets in India. I don't know if I'm happy to see supermarkets in India. I love the idea of going shopping in the markets and getting a fresh vegetable that you need that particular night and being able to go back the next day and getting a fresh vegetable. But in terms of convenience and convenience foods and a convenience lifestyle, you're seeing more and more of that in the cities now. One of the things that may surprise people about India is really the mosaic of cultures that are there. And certainly something that surprised me was to learn about one of the cultural influences uh, from the African continent. What do you know about the story of what many are terming lost Africans? Oh, um, the CD people, probably. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, Well, the Africans came to India hundreds of years ago to work for the Mughal landowners, and they came as bookkeepers and you know, professional people, but they were, I guess enslaved is not quite the right term for it, but they were paid in land, and their families were able to settle on this land, and they were able to build their own havelis or small mansions and their own... I guess, sort of kingdoms, and they thrived in India. Now, there are not many that have that exist today, but you'll find some in western Gujarat. And the African history really is coming from the East African nations, like Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. And still today, I meet a lot of Indian people who will say to me, well, I was born in Kenya, uh, and I was raised in Tanzania, but I am Indian, and I end up going to school in India, and now I've, I'm living here. So you find a lot of mixtures of the races and of the ethnic groups coming from Africa, from the East in particular. And you'll take that same journey in food, as a matter of fact. So a lot of the curries and things that you find in East Africa are very similar to the curries that you're going to find uh, going up the eastern, southeastern coast and into western, uh, northwestern India, the food trail. I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about some of the other states in India. You touched on one that we were recently introduced to, the state of Goa. Why is it so popular with tourists? There's so many things to do in Goa. If you take the time to go to Goa um, <laughs> and really enjoy it, not just go to the beach. The beach is fantastic, but you know, to get inland or into the city of Panjim, you experience Mediterranean culture in India. It's one of the first ports where the Portuguese came, and it's one of the last places that the Portuguese left in the 60s. So you have people who speak Portuguese, you have your Goan Portuguese, people who really have adopted the Portuguese culture and have maintained it as family, as families. The cuisine, I think, is one of the most prolific in India. I mean, India has fantastic, varied cuisine. And most people think of the cuisine in India as kebabs, curries, rice, bread. But it's different in every single region. So in Goa, you're going to find real Portuguese influence in the food. So a vindaloo is really a Portuguese curry that has been Indianized with the different kinds of spices. And in Goa, vindaloo is not really hot. Here, you'll put a lot of chilies in vindaloo. There, it's the layering of things like coriander and clove and cardamom that make up that curry and that make up that complexity. The other thing uh, is the Westerners get there and they and they love that 
different type of food. And like I said, it's really almost a Mediterranean feel. And the architecture is Mediterranean. There are a lot of different religions that coexist in Goa. You have everything from Hinduism to Judaism to Christianity. And the Catholic churches there, the, the basilicas that were built by the Portuguese, still stand. I've had the benefit of being in Goa two years in a row during uh, the Lenten season. And this year I was there just before Easter, so I was able to experience carnival. So it's, it's really, there's a lot of religious diversity, there's a lot of diversity in the people, and the cuisine, as I said, is one of the reasons to go and spend a few days there, just so you can taste real going Portuguese cuisine. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are talking to National Geographic International producer Don Drew about her upcoming television series that was filmed in India. Don is also offering a vicarious tour through her favorite states in India, including the resort of Goa. We have more information about Don and relevant travel links to India on the show page at our website, worldfootprints.com. Are there different dialects throughout the country, different languages? Yes. I have a very good friend who once told me, I think he said there were 16 languages in India or more. Goodness. Maybe he said 116. There are so many. And on a rupee note, there are about 12 of them printed. I think I have a rupee note right here I can take a look at. Um, I think it has... Uh, about 12 to 16 of the languages that are printed on one of these notes. I look at this all the time when I go there, and I think to myself, wow, you know, how do people start to really understand each other? And this friend of mine speaks, I think, eight different dialects. So going around the country with him is really an experience because he is, he understands and can be understood almost everywhere. And then, of course, almost everybody except for the villagers tend to speak English. As we've been talking here about uh, Goa, what are some of the things in Goa that a first-time traveler there should should see? Oh, definitely um, the churches in Panjim, the cathedrals and the uh, well, and the uh, basilica in, in uh, Panjim. Um, they are extraordinary and they're beautifully uh, preserved. They're hundreds of years old. Um, I think that. Uh, they should get into the rainforest um, and experience that. There are a number of plantations where you can um, go and you can actually pick cashews if you're there at the right time of year. It makes you appreciate cashews and as expensive as they can be because it shows you that one cashew nut grows out of one cashew fruit and then all the things you have to do to get to that one cashew nut. And you can experience that at the number of plantations in in Goa. also, there are a lot of um, sanctuaries where you can experience the wildlife, you know, firsthand. Uh, you know, elephants and monkeys, of course, and so many things. And then the fruit plantations where you can, you know, just pick the fruit off the trees. So there's a natural side of Goa that's not talked about that much. Um, and, you know, if you're an eco-traveler, if you're somebody who wants to get close to nature, there's so many options there. And I think if you're a first-time traveler to Goa, you want to do that. The other thing is getting off the beaches uh, and into some of the river inlets um, or the water inlets. There are communities there. I stayed in Baga Beach on a river, on Baga River, across from a small fishing village, and we were able to go fishing and crabbing and uh, cook outside. You know, these are things that you don't necessarily know about unless you get into Goa. 
Now, through my friends who have uh, ties to India, I've been able to learn a lot about places such as Chandigarh and Kerala, which I was very happy to hear, hear you speak of. What are some of the other places, if someone has two weeks to spend in the country, that you would recommend they visit? Well, if you have two weeks... Um you know, it depends on the kind of experience you want to have. I'm the kind of traveler, if I have two weeks, I probably want to just go two places because I want to have an in-depth experience each place. And um, if I was going to go to India for the first time for two weeks, I probably would spend a week in the north and I'd do five days of the Golden Triangle and I would probably take a week and go south and I'd spend it in, in Kerala and I, I'd go to a, an Ayurvedic Institute for five days. Um, just to have that experience there. And usually those are, you know, on an island if you're in, in uh, the Cochin area, or you can go up into the rainforest and, you know, Menar and find something like that. Um, if you're the kind of traveler who feels like you've got to go and see many different things and it's your first time, then you can do, you can fly into Goa, you know, see the sites there for a couple of days, fly down to Cochin see what's in the city of Cochin and maybe do some of the backwaters of Kerala. Although Goa has backwaters too, but Kerala has the big rice boats. You can, you know, float down a river for a day on that. Then you can head over to Tamil Nadu to Chennai and you can experience some of the cultural arts there. Head up to Kolkata um, and see, you know, what, what was once the capital of British India and then out through Delhi for all the major sites. You might have a day for the Taj Mahal or you might not. If, you, if you're doing this in two weeks. It's hard. But you can do what they call a Bharat Darshan, or Bharat Darshan, which is a trip around the circumference of India, which in my first season with um, filming David Rocco, that's pretty much what we did. We looked at, the first season we looked at um, the cities in India, the major cities, and we were in Delhi, uh, Bombay, um, where else we go? Oh, uh, Chennai, and then we were, um, and back up to, oh, we, we were in Rajasthan. Mm. Don, yeah. I know we are only scratching the surface of mm-hmm. India. I know there's so much more to uncover, more history, architecture, traditions. Love talking about the food. <laughs> and I know that's part of your passion, too. That's what you do uh, with mm-hmm. the with the show. And so we'd certainly love to have you back on our show again to share more of your experiences with India. To learn more about Dawn, her India experience, and upcoming television series, visit themost.com. That's M-O-S-T-E dot com. In this Destination Quick Hit, let's head to Virginia Beach with Teresa Diaz and Sarah Hughes. Hi, I'm Teresa Diaz from Virginia Beach. I'm Sarah Hughes, and I'm also with Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is the most populous city in Virginia. I think the most experiential thing you can do in Virginia Beach actually right now is Oyster Farm Tour. And there is one outfitter that will take you out to his farm, will teach you the whole history of the oyster, and then have you actually pick an oyster from the bottom of the bay, and he'll shuck it for you. You can eat it right there. The water is that clean now, and it's an amazing experience. Sarah will tell you about what would surprise most people about Virginia Beach. I think what surprises visitors and people most about Virginia Beach is that we have three different distinct beaches. You know, when people think of Virginia Beach, they think of our resort area beach, which has the boardwalk and lots of hotels, our King Neptune statue. But we have two other beaches that are also great for visitors. One is the Chesapeake Bay Beach, which sits on the Chesapeake Bay. 
Um, it's great for families with, you know, children because there's not really waves. You can watch both the sunrise and the sunset there, which makes that unique. Teresa mentioned the oyster farming. And then the third beach that we have is the Sandbridge Beach. You, In order to get there, you drive through multiple farms. 19 of them happen to be you picket farms where you can pick strawberries or blueberries or wildflowers. You can get, you know, a lot of local produce from the local stands out there. Now, Ian and I were at Virginia Beach a few years ago, right around Halloween, and there was a, a race that went along the boardwalk. People dressed in all sorts of costumes. Teresa, what is that? That's the Wicked 10K. We have a lot of foot races at Virginia Beach. We have the Rock and Roll Marathon. We have Virginia for Lovers Race. And they also do the same thing uh, around St. Patrick's Day for the Shamrock Marathon. Everyone dresses up and they run through the streets of Virginia Beach and then have a big block party at one of the oldest Irish pubs in Virginia Beach, Murphy's Emerald Isle. You, you guys almost sound like New Orleans where there's always something going on. There is always something going on in Virginia Beach. Actress Stephanie Powers has charmed audiences for many years with her grace and unparalleled talent. With over 20 feature films, several TV miniseries and theatrical roles, and a music CD to her credit. That was a surprise to her. I know, I know. Stephanie may be best known for her role as Jennifer Hart in the ABC series Heart to Heart, where she co-starred with Robert Wagner. And although acting remains very important to Stephanie, she has undertaken a gratifying and demanding real-life role as the president of the William Holden Wildlife Foundation, and she's here to share her love story and her heart with us. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you very much. Did I do all that? <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I ran out of breath trying to introduce you. you just, you're just a, 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 a well-rounded woman of the world and uh, an inspiration to me. <laughs> Travel has, I've never traveled frivolously, meaning I, I, don't, I don't do vacations. Uh, mm-hmm. Lying on a beach somewhere is absolutely of no interest whatsoever to me. I do expeditions an awful lot, and I have been able to do that ever since I was very, very young, and uh, also was able to travel to countries where we knew, our family knew people, so it was less touristic as it was actually going and being in a place where, where you were somehow connected. And then, of course, working uh, as one does in the movie business around the world, that also places you... Uh, in an unusual position with an unusual perspective because you are almost living in a country or mm-hmm. in a city away from your own and it and all that uh, that that demands it gives a, 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 a an unusual perspective uh, one that we are very privileged to have indeed so, and and frankly i was i would have been surprised if with everything you're doing, if you had said you do a lot of leisure traveling, because, my dear, I, I'm not sure where you'd find the time. And certainly okay. with, with your work with the William Holden Foundation, yes. well, which I was... created the William Holden Wildlife Foundation after mm-hmm. Bill's death in 1981, and uh, Bill and I lived together for the last nine years of his life. Um, of course, he had begun a conservation activity in East Africa. Now, it sounds very completely understandable, but let's remember that conservation as a word and a concept 
Mm. only came into the vernacular of popular culture in the 1970s. It's that recent. Likewise, as you know very well, travel as we know it only came became accessible in the way that it is now to the general public in the 1970s as well. So all, all of these things which we now take for granted and think that people always did forever and ever is really very recent. It's all new information, although in mass, for, for the mass of the public. Mm. Obviously, there were people who were concerned about the diminishing herds in, that were uh, in East Africa and had experiences in East Africa where the unique African animals that we all prize so much existed. And during their migrations, one could see, or at least they could see, even in the 1950s, that the herds were diminishing and that they were being predated other than by the normal predators, animal predators. They were being predated by the number one supreme predator, which is, of course, a human. Man. And that, yeah. there, that there was a time clock ticking. Of course, this never even came into the into the concept of the general public because they weren't concerned about it. They didn't think they had to be. We were in the midst in the 1950s of one of the greatest prosperity booms the world had ever seen, and uh, and everybody was just avariciously obtaining all privilege that we now take for granted. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to actress Stephanie Powers about her lifelong commitment to animal preservation and protection. Now, the William Holden Foundation has a strong educational focus and a focus on environmental consciousness, promoting that and just promoting best practices with respect to the relationship of man to the animals to the environment talk to us about the mission of the of the educational side of the foundation well let me first explain that when when william holden went to east africa in the 1950s he went as a hunter mm-hmm. uh, that's not a pejorative word because in many cases a lot of hunters were actually conservationists at heart and many of them actually began to to see the need for perhaps keeping some of the large tusked animals alive for the gene pool, and many of them put their guns down and actually became the fir- in the forefront of conservation, and that's what Bill did. So he and his partner, Don Hunt, created the Mount Kenya Game Ranch, where we continue to breed, I'm one of the directors now, where we continue to breed 37 species of East African wildlife, five of which are no longer visible in the wild. Bill had always, always felt that without the backup of education, specific animal preservation might simply fall by the wayside, and the minute your back was turned, bingo, off off would go a gun or a bow and arrow or a spear, and that animal would be dispatched. So with 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 education in mind, we established posthumously the uh, William Holden Wildlife Foundation, which was specifically designed to accomplish what Bill had not been able to do in his lifetime, and that was the building of a wildlife education center. We currently serve about 11,000 students a year, 
and we offer not only education in biodiversity and the essential role that biodiversity plays in our own survival, but we offer on-site and in practical application alternatives to habitat destruction, not only for animals, but for human beings. And in, in ways that are simple, simply adaptable, and very low in cost, which is, of course, crucial to people who are living in a subsistence way. I, I wanted to circle back to your first trip, when you first touched African soil. I know that Bill introduced you to the continent of Africa. How, what was that like for you, and how has it changed over the years, especially because you lived there for months at a time as, as a result of your work with the William Holden Wildlife Foundation? Well, he didn't actually introduce me to the continent. He introduced me to sub-Saharan East Africa. Oh, I beg your pardon. Been to North Africa before, and uh, I'd been to Egypt, and I'd spent some time in Morocco, but I'd never been to East Africa. So Bill opened the door. We had many things in common, and not the least of which was our, our love of uncomfortable places <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> expeditions and bugs, I guess. <laughs> And uh, I was already in love with the man, so it was very easy to fall in love with East Africa. It was, I suppose, like a fish to water. I, uh, I, but obviously, I, I never imagined that I would become quite as involved and quite as monopolized by uh, not just wildlife and conservation, but East Africa. We have more of our interview with actress Stephanie Powers just ahead on World Footprints Radio. To follow Stephanie Powers' acting career and advocacy work, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for relevant links. Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll continue our interview with actress Stephanie Powers. Stephanie tells us that her interest in animal conservation started at an early age with a rat named Petey. We will also talk to Peggy Goldman, founder of Friendly Planet Travel, and learn how she discovered the healing power of travel. We'll also get a sense of what Southern Delaware offers. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. Here's more of our conversation with actress Stephanie Powers. I just have to share this story that I read about you. Um, you, as as did I, when we were young, had um, desire to be a veterinarian. And I love the story about you rescuing the white mouse, and I can promise you my mother would not have been as gracious as yours. <laughs> <laughs> my mother, my long-suffering mother, everybody used to bring me anything that fell out of a tree or was squashed under a car. or It, it would somehow wind up at our house. And uh, 
we would nurse it back to health and with a lot of care and I'm sure mom's mom's participation suddenly miraculously they'd heal and there was one white <laughs> rat seemed as if we were we we always called all the white rats PD I don't know why where was PD <laughs> 1 2 3 4 up to PD 12 or something like that one PD I don't know I guess it was a particularly cold night and we kept PD on the service porch in a terrarium and we arrived there in the morning, and Petey was stiff as a board. I thought, oh, my God, rigor mortis is set in. <laughs> and my mother took this white rat, wrapped it in sort of a cotton wool in a little shoebox, and put it in a warm oven, and it thawed out. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> so we called it rigor mortis Petey. And oh. he lived for uh, many years after that. <laughs> oh. Back to the educational center. You you guys are doing so much good work there, but you also give back to the to the community. You invest in the community, and you've actually initiated some projects with the Kenyan school officials and parents to build more fuel efficient and sanitary dual purpose food preparation and dining facilities. Tell us a little bit about these activities. Well, we we decided um, at a certain point, actually largely because we live, I live on the edge of a forest reserve, and it's the forest reserve of Mount Kenya, and it goes all the way up on the slopes of Mount Kenya. And in the mornings, I ride my horses up on the mountain. Riding my horses up on the mountain, I came across a village. This is years and years ago. Came across a village with a little rural school and there were about 600 kids with about 14 teachers well they obviously had never seen horses before and I ride with my groom mm. and generally we were exercising horses so I would ride and, and have two horses one on either side of me so I'd ride in the middle and have these two horses on, and then he'd ride in the middle and have uh, two horses on either side of him, one horse on either side of him. So there were, we must have looked quite a sight. <laughs> Six horses coming up the road and only two people on top of them. And all of these kids went screaming out of school. And I thought, oh my God, my horses are polo ponies and so they're real athletes. And I thought, oh, I'm going to wind up on the ground. These horses are going to run home. I'm, we're, it's going to be a disaster. So I got off the horses walked over to the toughest, biggest kid and said, would you like a ride? Come on up and see these horses. He was scared to death of walking up to the horses, <laughs> but finally he did, and finally I got him up on one of the horses, and he was a hero. Mm. And we met, all the, we met all the teachers, and then I kept riding up there and talking with them, and I realized, you know, we'd missed the point. We built a beautiful education center, but we weren't reaching the rural communities who had no capacity to actually come to our beautiful education center. Why build something that doesn't have access? So that was a signal that we, we, we really should address ourselves to the needs and requirements of people who really were in the front lines of confrontation with wild animals. Living up in the forest, there are forest elephants, there are hyenas, there are leopards, there are zebras, there are buffalo, and so people are constantly in contact, and certainly the elephants raid their crops. Maybe they shouldn't be, be there planting crops, 
But anyway, they do. And so trying to create a bond uh, where one doesn't exist is a real challenge. And I guess, you know, over the ascent of man and the evolution of mankind, our exploitation until recently was always repairable until now. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to actress Stephanie Powers about travel and animal conservation. Now, Stephanie, to the Foundation's credit, you are pushing uh, sustainable communities. You're promoting education. And and I know in reading through some of the newsletters, uh, the Foundation really is making an impact with uh, the young people in Kenya who have a chance to participate in some of the programs of the foundation itself and, well, we and one of the are. you know there's never any guarantee yeah well, we yeah you know we're we're working against all odds and mm-hmm. when you look at what's going on in the whole of uh, sub-saharan africa and you see zimbabwe and you understand mm-hmm. what's happened to south africa and west yeah. africa and you see that it's very difficult to try and retrain a mind that's worried about whether or not it's going to have a meal on it to eat that night Mm. uh, and make them think about something that is uh, as as large a scope as the overall need for biodiversity and the preservation of it. Very difficult in most of the world. And I think it's the biggest lesson we have to learn as Americans is that most of the responsibility rests on our shoulders, and it is not something we should take lightly. We are principally responsible for most of the exploitation around the world of natural resources that feed our consumption, ultimately. And therefore, we should be leading in trying to reverse this process. Indeed. Now, for those in our listening audience, for the benefit of those in our listening audience, how can the public become involved and support the foundation? I know you've had a polo charity. You know, we did our first fundraising event in 1982. So we've done, the polo world was fantastic. They opened their hearts to us and their pocketbooks. And we've done lots and lots of polo events. We've also done concerts. We've done motion picture festivals, and we have our online and our continual ongoing fundraising through our newsletters and, mm-hmm. and our, our website. What is uh, your website address? It's WHWF, which are the initials of the William Holden Wildlife Foundation, dot org. To keep up with Stephanie Powers' career and philanthropic efforts, visit her website, stephaniepowersonline.com. We will also have a link to Stephanie's website and various animal charities on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Destination Quick Hit will visit Southern Delaware with Tina Coleman. 
My name is Tina Coleman, and I'm from Southern Delaware. We are the Sussex County, which is the southernmost county in Delaware. It's about 36 miles wide and about 35 miles north and south. Mm-hmm. Along the coast, we have bay beaches and ocean beaches, as well as inland bays and waterways, including canals and creeks and, you know, you name it, we've got it all. We've even got a cypress swamp. It's the northernmost cypress swamp in the United States, oh my which goodness. is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> does, so does Sussex County also, does that include Rehoboth Beach, which is an area that I know quite well? Yeah, absolutely. It includes Rehoboth Beach. It includes Lewis, Bethany, and Fenwick. Okay. They're the most known beach areas. And then inland Sussex is largely agricultural, which means that we have amazing farmers markets. And we, we're known as the culinary coast. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that so much of the food that our restaurants use is fresh right off the farms mm-hmm. from inland Sussex. Yeah. We have wonderful seafood and wonderful chefs. We've got James Beard nominated and award-winning chefs. The level that our chefs have brought our restaurants to in that area is just so tremendous that it, we're a real culinary destination now. What would surprise most people to know about Delaware? I think probably the variety of experiences that are available in southern Delaware. There's so much history, mm-hmm. beautiful architecture. Of course, we have a lot of water sports, but we have beautiful biking trails, fishing, cultural experiences. Our arts and entertainment are unparalleled. They really are. Local theater is incredible, and a lot of art leagues and galleries and studio tours and, you know, you name it. We've got it. Public art is wonderful. Our history goes back to even way before James Smith explored the Chesapeake and came up the Nanticoke River. The Nanticoke Indians actually met him when he came up the Nanticoke River, and they're still a very vital resource in our county. They have a wonderful museum in Millsboro. They sponsor a powwow every September, and that attracts 40, you know, representatives of 40 tribes from all over the place that come to that. So they're a very, you know, important part of our community. Goldman is a great example with Friendly Planet Travel of social consciousness and business mixing. And she's done a fantastic job along with her husband of making those two pillars of her business work. And I was just taken back by her journey and her story. And I think it's really an amazing one, not just of transformation, but of showing that if your heart's in the right place, You can do a lot of good things out here, even through business, through philanthropic means, and so forth. And even when you you step out on faith, I mean, Peggy told us offline that when they transitioned from a brick and mortar to an internet, she thought the internet was something you drive to. This was back in the early uh, 2000s when the internet was just coming into, into play. But look at what they've been able to build just by stepping out on faith. Friendly Planet Travel is a popular group tour operator that we first became acquainted with during a trip to South Africa for our honeymoon. We appreciated Friendly Planet because the price points and the value offered were highly competitive, almost too good to be true. When we had the opportunity to meet Friendly Planet founder Peggy Goldman recently, we never expected to learn about her story of survival, loss, and healing through travel. 
Your backstory is really interesting. Share how you got into, how you went from a religious tour operator, how you got into the travel business, to where you are now. Wow. Gosh, that's a story that took almost 35 years to evolve, but I'll try to tell it to you in a nutshell. So many years ago, I was a recently divorced mom with two little kids, and I found myself needing to find a way to support us and a friend who just happened to mention to me when I was complaining to her that my Ph.D., program that I was getting ready to begin was going to have to be put on hold. And I asked, what could I possibly do? I was an English major interested in medieval studies. It was not exactly the pinnacle of academic demand at that time. So uh, she suggested that I go and speak with a local travel agent who was looking for what were called outside agents. And I went to talk to him, and he said, sure, if you know a lot of people in town, I'll hire you, and you tell everybody you're a travel agent, and you'll get started, and we'll help you. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And I discovered after a very short time that this was probably not going to be for me to be a regular travel agent. And I was about to give up the whole idea when I came across an event that would be taking place in Jerusalem in June of 1981. My parents were Holocaust survivors, and I was born in Poland after the war ended. This event was going to be a gathering, a first-time-ever gathering of Holocaust survivors with their families in Jerusalem as essentially an opportunity to show the world that we not only survived, but we prospered, and to make that statement in the democratic nation of Israel. So that sounded like a very, very exciting and cool idea to me. And I got myself appointed as the Philadelphia official delegation to this event, And I organized somehow a group of 200 people to go to this event. And that actually, organizing that group and participating in that event in Jerusalem with my parents and my kids, three generations of survivors, together with so many thousands more, I believe uh, I have to say that that was the beginning of um, of my travel business. Serendipitously, there was another company in town that was going out of business, and he asked me to take over a pilgrim group that was going to Israel. And I said I would take it over and operate it for him because he was going out of business and he didn't want to let the group down. And that was my first experience as a Jewish Holocaust survivor myself. Wow. My first experience with a Christian organization that was going to Israel as a pilgrimage and what that meant to them. And I found that absolutely thrilling and fascinating, and I wanted to know more. So I started looking for opportunities to speak in churches, to try and bring people to Israel using my company, but explaining to them what it meant to me 
as a Holocaust survivor to see Christians going to Israel and, in a way, doing something very special for Israel, which meant a lot to me personally. And the business evolved that way. I spent years traveling around the country. It's kind of an anomaly. Uh, usually, their pastors are the ones that are very involved in organizing Christian group travel. So here I was, a nice Jewish girl from Philadelphia, <laughs> and my business went in that direction. But it was a wonderful direction. And having had that experience probably gave me and my husband, who's my partner in the business, the tools to be able to do the kind of work that we do today because the foundations are essentially the same. This is World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're talking about the healing and restorative power of travel with Friendly Planet founder Peggy Goldman. As the one who discovered Friendly Planet Travel in 2000. 2005 uh, planning our honeymoon at the time, I was struck by the fact that Friendly Planet Travel, to me at least, offered tremendous value for the price, and I was just blown away by the richness of the itineraries and the things that were covered, and, I, and it just left my head scratching how you guys could do this. And, and make money. <laughs> Well, I love the question because if that's how you felt, then we really accomplished what we want to accomplish when we build these tours. You know, working with churches, as long as we did, we really became very attuned to how important it is to be very good stewards of everyone's resources, including our own. So when we built tours for pilgrims, for people going to visit Israel as pilgrims, we understood that the less they cost, the easier it would be for people to afford the experience. And we worked very hard at negotiating. And because we are a business-to-consumer model, there aren't a lot of layers in between us, the manufacturer, and you, the traveler, which at all that time that we were working was not actually the model in the, the classic travel industry. There were different layers of supplier and wholesaler and tour operator. and uh, So we cut to the chase, and we also, because we had learned so well about how to price in a way that would be acceptable that would be fair and also to ourselves we came up with a pricing model that we are still using today and it works really really well for us you recently started a nonprofit uh, foundation right. as part of friendly planet why did you create that foundation and what is your mission well i had been wanting to do that for a while we are involved in different outreach activities in various places around the world. It's a natural outcome of going and seeing need, being received so warmly by people who welcome us into their communities and do such a good job of receiving our travelers, in many cases needing so much more than and having so much less 
than we have. So for us, it was a natural outgrowth of, of going and visiting and seeing. Um, we started supporting various projects. We dig wells in Cambodia. We support um, a very big project in Vietnam. We've been supporting all along Kiva, which is a micro-lending organization. We've got uh, quite a nice team going there with micro-lending. And um, we decided to formalize these activities by organizing a nonprofit. I lost my son uh, just a little over a year ago, and I decided that in his memory, I wanted to formalize these activities that we're involved in and grow them and make Friendly Planet a friendly contributor on a lot of levels in where we see need. And we like very much to contribute to education of women. We have found that where women are given opportunities to grow businesses, they use the resources, they use the money that they earn to feed and educate their children and especially in third world communities, it's very important that women who are cut off from uh, other avenues be taught how to do things like sew and make jewelry and do things that they're able to use in supporting themselves and their families. We also care a lot about children and we care a lot about the environment. So we have projects that have to do with clean water we supply lots of mosquito netting, and we do all kinds of things that we can see the results of with our own eyes. So we're not really involved so much with big NGOs and big organizations. We like to work with small groups, kind of the way churches do when they have missions abroad, mm-hmm. and they send groups of people to a community to, say, help build a, a church or put a roof on a school. So we like initiatives like that, and we hope that a portion of our profits each year will be converted into lots of good works around the world. Yes. Well, Peggy, thank you so much. I feel like Ian and I have kind of come full circle. You know, Friendly Planet was very integral to our life, the beginning of our life together, and it's just been wonderful to to share your spirit and inspiration and just kind heart with our audience. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. To explore the world and plan your next adventure with Friendly Planet, visit FriendlyPlanet.com. We also have a link to Friendly Planet on this show page at WorldFootprints.com. perception, dear, about India before our conversation with Dawn, because I asked because mine was of a country that is polluted, overcrowded, the images, you know, that are often seen in the media, that was my perception, and it wasn't very favorable, even though I've heard wonderful things about 
India and how transformative that trip to India has been for some of our colleagues and other people? Well, it's always been a mixed bag for me. I, I think everyone is familiar with the poverty there, but also the extremes of wealth, too, there as well as uh, there are so many billionaires today in India uh, as well. And so you've got really pronounced extremes there with so many people living in really tough, squalid conditions. And just the sheer number of people there has always struck me about the place as a very crowded, difficult place. Well, one of the things that really surprised me to learn about India because of my initial perception is the country's commitment to conservation and preservation and to hear about the number of green spots throughout the country, uh, many along the coastline. Uh, I thought that was very admirable and certainly also their commitment to animal preservation and the environment, you know, the rainforest. I love those things about India, and those are things that we don't hear. And an area that I would love to learn more about is the, the lost cultures, uh, the Sidi people, the African influence in India, and really just see how that evolved over the years. Well, that was all new to me, so that was really revelatory just to learn of that. So I'm actually looking forward to visiting India when we get the chance, hopefully in the near future. Mm-hmm. And speaking of animal conservation, we have our lovely friend, Stephanie Powers. You know, she is still going strong. I I don't know how old she is. I wouldn't dare ask, but she's on the stage. She was recently seen on Broadway, and she's still working very hard on animal conservation and preservation issues with the William Holden Foundation and others. She actually was recruited as consultant for Jaguar and their foundation, which is really interesting. Jaguar, the car company, and their foundation. And, uh, and so it's nice to see celebrities lending their name and their talents uh, towards uh, leaving positive legacies here. And then there's Peggy Goldman with really a, a wonderful story with Friendly Planet Travel. And as we like to tell people, that's kind of uh, how we got, got our start together with our honeymoon with their help. And I will never forget being at work in Washington in 2004. Um, I think it was November. And I was looking at a travel zoo uh, flyer that came through an email And I saw this trip to South Africa, and I could not believe the price. And that started my love affair, not just with you, but with Friendly Planet Travel. Well, we've kind of come full circle with with Friendly Travel. And to have Peggy on our show and hear how she started, what she went through, some of the challenges she overcame to build Friendly uh, Planet, and also, you know, to keep keep the uh, company... At its foundational mission, you know, to offer great value um, for low price. I mean, they're very competitive, and I'm looking forward to working with Peggy and Friendly Planet uh, in the near future for World Footprints. And one of those things, even as the travel business has changed, they've really made an effort to maintain those opportunities through those wide array of packages to give people a chance to travel the world. So kudos to them. And speaking of traveling the world, as we close, we'd like to ask you to think about these words from Heinrich Boll. 
one ought to go far in order to know how far one can go. It has been a pleasure to share a bit of the world with you. We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn and live it at worldfootprints.com.